we are continuing our I Like um, Giving series, and we talked about we talked about generous thoughts. We've talked about generous with your words, and today. Today, uh, we're going to talk about being generous with your money. Now, don't, don't anybody leave. So, settle down. Okay, we got it out. I want to make sure that I preface this by saying this is not a chastisement sermon. It's a challenging sermon. If you're in Christ Jesus, the Bible says there's no condemnation. And if you come into a church and the church condemns you, after you're already saved, they've got it backwards. So, so many times we, we come to a, a church service and we're like, oh, he's going he's gonna to bust me on the money thing. I know he's going to bust me on the money thing. He started talking about my Harley. I'm glad you got a Harley. Uh, but we're going to have a conversation this morning, a challenge. Amen? A challenge. And so if you're up for that, uh, I hope you are. And, um, and we're going to dig into it. So Mark... We're going to look at Mark chapter 12. You can stand to your feet one more time. And I promise this will be the last time till the end that you have to stand up. I told the first service I was in a different tribe at a funeral in a different tribe a couple weeks ago. And I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know if I was supposed to stand or sit. So I just sat. I think it was wrong, but I was doing it confidently. Mark chapter 12. This will be the last time you have to stand. Mark chapter 12, we're just going to start in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great thong heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people put putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small, small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but out of her poverty, she has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Father, we thank you for this word today, God. We pray ultimately that at the end of our conversation, our hearts would be turned towards you. God, if you can win our hearts, Lord, everything follows. So do what you do today, Lord. Change our minds about your word. Change our minds about how you've called us to live. And Lord, I have no doubt that you'll keep your promises. I pray that more of us experience that. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. I like, 
I like giving background on what we read because without context, it's very difficult to know what you're supposed to know. Because I've been doing this long enough to know you can take one verse out of scripture and justify anything you're doing. Anything you're doing. And so it's important to understand the context of what we're getting ready to read and how and what was happening and why it was happening. So this is the Passion Week of Christ. Christ comes into the temple and we know his first engagement in the temple. He was not happy with what he saw. There were people selling things and become a marketplace and not much worship was going on. And so... Uh, so he comes in and he flips over, uh, he calls a scene, calls a huge scene. I'm not sure when the last time you went to church and flipped over tables, I don't recommend it. Uh, but Jesus enters the temple this last time in that context and he's teaching throughout the week. And, and so most of the context of what Mark teaches us here is that the teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees, all the ruling class people are asking him questions, trying to catch him. And we pick up in verse 35 that Jesus turns the tables on them. And Jesus asks them a question. And he says, hey, how can, how can the Christ be the son of David if David himself calls him Lord? You ever been to, you ever been to a souvenir store after you've left an amusement park or something? You saw the puzzle that looked impossible to solve. And then a four-year-old walks up and goes, Whoosh. you're like, I hate you, kid. This is what Jesus was doing. Technically, the Christ was the son of David because he came after David. But because John tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and all things were created by him, and nothing was created without him, we know that Jesus was before David. Now, it, Mark doesn't record that the scribes and the Pharisees, no ruling class people responded at all to him about this. Because I'm sure they sat there and went, hey, Jimmy, do you know what he's talking about? Because he's, he, he's, he's got us. I don't even, how, how did he call him Lord when he was his son? Like, how did that? Now, it's very important to realize Mark records this one little sentence right after Jesus asked this question, to which Mark records no response. He says, and the throngs basically enjoyed the whole scenario. The common people are standing around listening to it, and when Jesus challenges the ruling class people and they have no response, all the common people went, <laughs> oh, this guy's good. This guy's good. This is a good day. It then says he changes his location and goes into the, like a court area, not, not a court room, but a, a court, like an outer court, inner court, things like that. Goes into a court and sits down and it happens to be the place where everybody's putting their money in. He moves to the, it's, it's the court of women, it's called, where women were allowed. And by the way, men were allowed in that court as well. If you're going to collect an offering, put men and women together. So the men and women were allowed to be in this court. And there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles that people could place their offering in. And they, were, they represented different offerings and tithes that were supposed to be given to the temple. And so Jesus sits opposite of these walls where these 
Imagine boxes with trumpet-shaped receptacles on them where people could put their offering in. And the offering more than likely would have made a sound when it hit the receptacle. It's the time where you bring your offering in pennies to make the loudest clang. If I'm going to give 10 bucks, I'm going to make sure everybody hears it. So Jesus set himself opposite of this show that was going on and, and he watches what happens. And so the Bible says that many people, many, um, what we call rich people, ruling class people would come in and give their large sums and it would make a noise. Now, right before this, right after he answers or asks the question and right before he's watching, he says something that's very important and he's, and he starts teaching the disciples an attitude that you need to be aware of. He said, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They like to be recognized, he said. If I'm going to wear my robe, that, that it would be uh, really fancy with tassels on the bottom of it. And I'm going to walk around the marketplace and wait on somebody to recognize me. He said they like doing that. They like having the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast. Now in verse 40 though, he says something very important. He says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. He says they will receive the greater condemnation. So imagine this. Jesus just taught the disciples that. They just seen him stump the scribes, just teaches them this thing. And then he sits down opposite of people giving offerings and they watch the very people that he was talking about come in and make a show. And then the poor widow comes in. Now she's not just a widow because Mark, Mark makes sure we understand that she was a poor widow. She wasn't a widow that her husband left her a ton of money. Or she had kids, uh, kids that were just going to take care of her. She was a, a poor widow. And a, and a widow at that time, a poor widow at that time is about the worst condition you wanted to be in. Walks up to one of those trumpet-shaped receptacles. The Bible says dropped in two coins. Now the ESV translation that we're reading right now says two copper coins, which e- equal to penny. It was really two, the smallest denomination coin made at that time. Uh, that the Jews were allowed to put. And they, they, they didn't use Roman coins. It was the two smallest denominations. It equaled about six minutes of labor in an average day. About the smallest thing you could put in. And, and the way the thing was set up where they were hearing all this money drop into these containers, you, it probably didn't even make a sound. It was probably a thing where you, where you watched her and you thought, well, did she even really put anything in it? I mean, when it's juxtaposition against somebody who was, who was pouring all these coins in there, in their flowing robe, kind of looking over their shoulder like, did everybody hear that? Dropping all this money in. It would have almost seemed like she just walked up there for no reason. She put these two little coins in. And Jesus calls the disciple over, disciples over to himself. And he says, hey... Do you see all these guys putting money in? They're like, oh yeah, man. We got some ballers here this morning. Woo! He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. Did you see the widow? They're like, yeah. I don't, I don't even know if she gave anything. I didn't hear anything. I think she kicked 
the box to make it sound like something hit. She put in two coins. And the issue is, do you remember all those people that were putting all that money in? It didn't mean anything to them. But she put in two coins and it, it was everything that she had and she still came. Now, this is just a theory, but let's, let's walk down the road a second. Jesus had just finished teaching them that the scribes were guilty of devouring widows' houses. Like the dirtiest financial trick you could do, take a widow's house from them. But he said, these are the people that are guilty of doing just that thing. And so it might be fair to assume that this widow here could have been a victim of a financial scheme that the scribes had been, had been doing with widows. So, so here are these rich people putting their money in the offering when making all these clients, getting all this attention, and, the, and one of the women who possibly could have been the victim of that crime still comes and drops two coins. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's either crazy or totally connected to God, which I've seen called crazy. You know, I like to, um, I like to watch cop shows. Anybody else here like watching cop shows? So real, like the whole thing. I know it's real. <laughs> What I find out watching cop shows is money always tells a story. Did you know that? Money always tells a story. Your money tells a story. The widow's money was telling a story. The, the, the scribe's money was telling a story. Everybody's money tells a story. And we get to determine what that story says. Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount taught in Matthew chapter 6 verse 21. For where your treasure is, some of you know this, there your Heart will be also. He was encouraging the people hearing that sermon that day not to store up treasures here, but focus on eternal treasures. He was saying, your money is telling a story and you need to be writing the right story. So I, I started thinking, anybody remember Y2K? I remember that? 2000? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you had like a basement full of food? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. I started thinking about that. I started thinking, me and my wife are so broke, we couldn't afford to put a basement for We were just like, oh, I guess we're going to trust Jesus. Anybody else remember that? Like, everybody's like, we're all going to die. And I'm like, how can computers kill us all? That might happen in 20-whatever, but I'm thinking, I don't, we lived a long time before computers. We got up in the morning without them. Went to bed without them? Remember to have an alarm clock that didn't have a computer in it? And so I was baffled a little bit about how one tick of a time clock or whatever was going on. And I know all the computer people are like, he's so dumb, we all could have really died. I, I get it. But listen, I just thought, I don't know what else I'm going to do. 
So Jesus was teaching, don't prepare so much for what's going to be a blip on the scope of history. And even if I live to be a hundred, it's a blip. So, so what the Bible calls a vapor, he says, don't put so much work into preparing for that and the, and the storing up treasures. He's like, if you want to prepare for something, prepare for forever. So, so if I, pre, if I prepare for 50 more years, shouldn't I be preparing for eternal more years where, where you can't even count years? It's pointless. So Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, it's saying, listen, don't store up for yourself treasures here where the rust happens and the and if you want to afford like I do, it's inevitable, it's gonna happen. So, like all these things that don't store, don't put all your focus on that. Put all put your focus on what's gonna happen in eternity and let your finances tell that story. Let your finances tell the story. So Jesus said, make sure. That you're telling the right story. He brought them there to see the story of the scribes and the story of the widow. And what he was teaching them is our treasures reveal our hearts. What we talk about the most, what we value the most, what we hold on to the most. So here's the link back to the, uh, to the cop shows. I don't know how it happens. I've never been a cop. I've never been an investigator. I don't know how it happens. But on TV... As soon as somebody commits a crime, they're like, we got their credit card records. Like it was on their cell phone the whole time. Just, I got their credit card records. I'm like, how do you do that? Did you have my credit card records on the TV show? So they pull it out and they go, they go, oh, they said they weren't in Florida. They were in Florida. They bought a whoopie pie and a Diet Coke at the 7-Eleven. Now we've got them. And you're like, I just found out they love whoopie pies and Diet Cokes too. Did you realize that? That they eat carbs, but they mix it up with a diet drink so it's all equal. You just thought they were a criminal, but I just found out they were really smart in their carb intake. So much stuff you can figure out. Because finances tell a story. It's hard <laughs> be so careful. It's hard for me to believe that you really love someone if your finances never say you've ever bought them anything. If you've never purchased a card, if you've never taken them to dinner, if you've never bought them a Christmas gift, if I look back through your finances and you're like, well, she knows I love her. No, she doesn't because you've never bought her anything. It's hard to believe that, that you're a big fan of something. It would never reflect in your finances. It's hard to believe that you, that you, that you like sushi, but you've never bought any. Finances tell the story of our life, what we like, what we don't like, what we think is important, what we don't think is important. And just like an investigative TV show, you could look at your finances and see, me and my wife really like sushi. We ate too much of it last night. And I can show you, these people are serious. They devoted a large portion of their salaries to sushi. People serious about it. 
But our treasure, what we have, what we hold, what we spend, it reveals our hearts. Even if the crime has nothing to do with money, the investigator can tell where you've been. It can tell how we eat, how we dress, where our kids go, what we value, what we care about. So just as it would be hard to, to tell an investigator, no, I, I, I wasn't there when you were there, it's when you were spending money, it would be hard for us to say we're a follower of Christ, but never have our finances reflected. It'd be hard to sell. Say, no, 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 I'm a generous person, but I'm only generous with words and thoughts. The next time, the next time the Girl Scout walks up to your door and rings the bell and says she's got $500 in cookies that she wants you to buy, and you say, I'm thinking generous thoughts towards you right now. She's going to leave and say, mom, they're crazy and they're stingy. So what story are our finances telling? The issue is Jesus could see the real story the rich leaders were telling. It was not a compelling one. They needed everyone to know what they were doing, how much they were giving. It was all a show with their robes and sitting in the right places, being recognized. It was one more thing he was telling the disciples. Listen, this is just one more way they want to be at the front of the front of the pack. The offering revealed their heart, but it was the opposite for the woman and her desperate needs. She trusted God and gave. She was still generous. And Jesus made sure that the story was memorialized in Mark's writing so that we could see that giving out of a pure, what giving out of a pure heart looks like. So watch this. You know what the story he was telling us? The sound of the gift is meaningless. Now, now watch this. There are some people that can give in secret. And there's some people that like to hear the clang. I'm going to just think about that for a second. Here's how it works out. There are people that are super generous in this church, not just to the church, but super generous in general to all kinds of organizations and charities and good things. And, and I don't know any of it. And then there are people in a church this size who have to walk up to me and give me a check. Clang. Jesus was saying the sound of the gift doesn't mean anything. The sound doesn't mean there's a heart connection to it. Remember this. It doesn't mean there's a heart connection to these guys pouring money and pouring money and make sure, looking over the show, make sure everybody knows, hey, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Clank, 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 clank. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? He says, none of that matters. Now the problem is this. In our modern day world, listen, you need money to keep the lights on. If you're, if you're part of a nonprofit in here and somebody comes up and gives you two pennies, you're going to slap them on the back and say, hey man, I really appreciate that sacrifice. Are you kidding me? But the person that walks in and gives $40,000, you're like, hey, now we can keep the lights on. But I want to teach you something here in the next few moments because the issue is not the sound. It's not how big it is because the gift could be big but detached. Do you understand how that works? 
It could be big but detached. Now watch this. I'm going to use simple math here. Nobody's panicking yet. So let's say somebody makes $20,000 a year. Everybody following me? 10% of that, if we go the Old Testament view of tithing, 10% of that would be how much? Quick, without thinking. $2,000. What's 20 minus $2,000? $18,000. Now, now, if you're going to be generous, let's just say 10%, just for easy. 20000 minus 2000 is 18000 That's a chunk. If you started out with 20 and you're like, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't even know how this is going to happen, but I'm going to give a 10th of $20,000 away. I don't, I don't even know how I'm going to make it. Lord, I didn't think I could make it on 20. Now I'm down to $18,000. This is a sacrifice Lord, and I'm trusting you for it. All right. Now watch what happens. 10 years later, they got a promotion making a hundred grand a year. Somebody say, Hey, the Lord blesses, right? The blessing of the Lord. And they're telling the story. God blessed me. I'm telling you when I would make $20,000, I'd never miss the tithe. I tithe and tithe and tithe. I tithe $2,000 every year. And I throw in, I throw in $5 in the offering plate just to make sure you knew I was serious. What's 10% of $100,000? I could give $10,000 away and live on 90. I like God's math. I like God's math. Isn't this awesome? The issue is $10,000 means nothing to me now. Okay. You might, you might say, well, no, that still could mean something. Let's increase it. Let's say you make half a million dollars a year. Let's say you make half a million. Everybody's like, come on, let's be realistic. Say make half. What's 10% of half a million? 50,000. You can live on 450,000. You can tell your accountant, give 10% away. I don't even care where you do it. So what Jesus was saying is $50,000. Bang. That makes a lot of noise, doesn't it? You keep the lights on a long time with $50,000. I can tell Sam, you get a new projector. 50,000. Woo. Didn't mean anywhere near as much as the two. It didn't mean anywhere near as much as the two. So what happens is we take Old Testament legalism and we put it on top of New Testament grace and we check a box. And we go, I did the 10%. God's happy with me now. And he says, no, 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 no. The scribes and the Pharisees were given 10% and it was making a ton of noise. But it didn't mean anything to them. They, they, it had gotten so far away from their heart that it didn't even matter anymore. So I say, Chris, I'm not rich. I don't care what you make. All I care about is the heart. That's why when you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's not legalism anymore. It's all about the heart. From what you sow, you will reap. So your heart condition determines the harvest. Do you understand where I'm going with that? So what happens is if we take the Old Testament, which God didn't absolve, he fulfilled, and we try to live, just check the box, check the box, check the box, we miss the heart of Christ. We miss the whole thing. 
So what, what we have found out is the more money we make, the more we have to put our heart into it. Come on, wouldn't it be nice if we could just check a 10% box? Mm, I feel so good about myself, I gave 10%. And I gave a little bit to the Girl Scout. God loves me. Jesus is teaching the disciples, it's not about 10%. That 10% made a huge claim. That 10% will keep the lights on in the temple. They didn't have lights, but let's just work with it. That, that 10% will provide, that 10% will do all this stuff. The reality is the two coins that that widow put in meant nothing. What's it going to do? It's, it's, it, it's equivalent to a penny. What's it going to do? It didn't matter. But Jesus was saying, listen, listen, it was more than 10%. It was a heart thing. There was no separation between what she gave and who she was. It mattered. The whole thing mattered. And even if it's so small, people could overlook it. The heart of God was in her to the point that made her give it. So we have to ask ourselves, am I giving without my heart being in it? Because Jesus said, that doesn't matter. All those people, man, it was a lot of money. It was a big noise. People do make a big deal about it. But if it's divorced from your heart, if you could do it without even thinking, if you could do it without it making an impact, if you can do it without having to trust God, then it doesn't matter. Remember, this is a challenge, not a chastisement. He's saying, look, I need it to be connected to your heart. So how much of my heart is in the gift? How much of the gift is who we are, not what we have to do? You know what? I stopped looking at it like that a long time ago because that'll make you crazy. What box do I have to check? What do, do, tell me, what do I have to do? God's not the IRS. He, he's not the IRS. The New Testament doesn't say anything like that. It says if you want to turn your heart more towards God, he'll meet you every time you do it. So there is no, hey, the, the, the heavenly auditor is coming next month and you better have your taxes right. And at the end of, your, end of you doing your taxes, you better show that you gave away 10%. God's not doing that. He's saying, hey man, how much of your heart is turned towards me? Are you just checking the box or are you trying to go on this journey with me? Because I will never disappoint you. I'll never disappoint you. It's not the sound that the offering makes. It's your heart turning towards God that gets his attention. So, so if it's a $2, if it's a $2 offering and it's your heart is totally in it, God will turn to you faster than somebody giving a hundred thousand dollars and not matter to him. Amen. So the sound of the gift is meaningless. Your money tells a story, but the sound is meaningless. So God deals in percentages, not, not amounts. Is a, is a percentage you're giving enough to trigger your heart? You have to think about it. Now watch this. Here's what he's trying to get us to change to. Everybody make this statement with me. I like giving money. Some of you went. I threw up in my mouth a little bit, but it, 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 I think it came out. Try, try it again. It'll loosen you up a little bit more. Now you're ready. Ready? I like giving money. You're getting better at it already. I like giving money. 
Oh, somebody's really excited. Listen, Jesus wasn't teaching every reader of the story to go to church and deposit your whole check every week and live on the streets. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying don't supply for your family, to not eat out or go on vacation. He wasn't saying don't save up for retirement. He wasn't saying don't send your kids to college. He wasn't saying any of that. Proverbs over and over and over again tells you to take care of your family. It tells you. The Bible tells you to estimate how much things are going to cost and be prepared for it. Don't read. There's nowhere in scripture where it's just retire and trust God. He'll figure it out for you. No, have a plan. There's wisdom. But what he is saying is in the middle of all that, you can live a generous life to the point where you will get God's attention and he will then pour back on you blessings that don't make financial sense. So go to your financial advisor and tell them you want to invest and then tell them you're going to give away as much as you can give away. And then tell them when I come back in, you're going to see how God's economy works and I'll have more to put in this little trinket thing you want to set up for me. Because the returns I'm going to get on this far outweigh the returns I'm going to get on that. So what God is trying to get us positioned for is to actually like the act of giving. <laughs> this is the tough part, isn't it? It's like, it's like I got the money in my hand, but you're going to have to pull it. It's here, but you're going to have to pull it out. God wants us to freely, out of the heart, that God has transformed into one like his own, where it says he loved us so much that he gave. That the sign that we love God and in turn love people is that we are willing freely and actually happy to do so to the point where we like it to give. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, one gives freely, Yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. That's wisdom. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse six. I'm going to read this from the message paraphrase because it's awesome. Paul's writing to the, his second letter to the Corinthian church. He says, remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. Man, I love that. You know what I hate? I hate being conned into giving something. You don't need to give me a sob story. If it's a good thing, let's do it. But the church has gotten this bad reputation because everybody's running around going, well, if you don't, you're cursed and blah, 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 blah. And we're, we're trying to trick people into give versus people having a heart condition to give. Amen? I don't need another picture of a, 
of, a, of something that's tragic to give to something. Like why do we need to be coerced if our hearts are bent towards it? So Paul says, you don't need another sob story. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. He says, I love it when they like it. God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything more than just ready to do what needs to be done. As one psalmist puts it, he throws caution to the winds, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out. Man, if I could drive that into our heads this morning, that he will supply seed to the sower, the Bible says. This very scripture. The most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. The moral of that story is that when your heart is turned towards him, he says, boom, I'll give you more, 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 I'll give you more. Because God's income doesn't float up and down with the stock market. And our trust in him doesn't have to be linked to that either. So we say, God, I trust you in this circumstance. And he says, man, that's a hard turn towards me. Here's another hundred, kid. Here's another blessing. 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 I've seen story over and over and over in this very church, even recently, even in the last couple of weeks where people were extremely generous beyond my expectation, beyond what I thought they were capable of, extremely generous and then turn around and God blesses them unbelievably. You know, my conversation is with them. They'll say, man, we're so shocked. And I say, I'm not. I'm not shocked. This is scripture being lived out. Every chance you have to be generous, you take it. And you have a smile on your face when you do it. And then when God turns around and blesses you abundantly so you can keep doing it, that's just him proving himself out. So just in case you think I'm crazy, just in case there's some people here who think, well, you're using scripture to prove scripture and that's a little sideways. I read this in U.S. News. Listen to this. The feel-good effects of giving begin in the brain. It's called the giver's glow, says Stephen G. Post, director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at New York Stony Brook University. Just a tad bit more educated than me. So if you don't believe scripture was written thousand years, 2,000 years ago, that God himself anointed and helped pen. Listen to this dude. He's smart. The response, he says, is triggered by brain chemistry in the mesolimic pathway, which recognizes rewarding stimuli. Philanthropy doles out several different happiness chemicals, Post says, including dopamine, endorphins that give people a sense of euphoria, and oxytocin, which is associated with tranquility, serenity, and inner peace. Viewing the brain with MRI technology during moments of generosity or selfless behavior has led scientists to uncover that even the thought of giving can engage this response. He says, 
We hooked an MRI up to a dude's brain, and when they thought about being generous, they started feeling better. That's why stingy people are always mad. Think about it for a second. Whether you're giving time, money, or a helping hand, you stand to receive the stressed, busting benefits of altruism. But your intentions or how you feel about the action matter. I'm telling you, science proves scripture every time. Watch this. Your intentions or how you feel about the action matter. If it's a meaningful donation, it can have a significant impact, Post says. But if it's trivial or just grudging or whatever, probably not. Remember we talked about the 2,000 out of 20? Versus the 50 out of 500. He said, if it's a meaningful donation, God gives you a hit of dopamine, hit of oxytocin. And you're like, "Woo! don't this feel good? I like this. I like giving. You see, God's not a stingy God. Think about the way he wired your brain. When you do things that please him, he has a built-in mechanism to go, bang, that was a good idea. That was a good thing you did right there. You don't even have to wait for a reward. He will give it to you in the moment. The Bible's not only the Bible says, but this says the smart guy. He says a meaningful gift, dopamine and oxytocin. Boy, say, I'm going to the drugstore today. What are you doing? I'm just going to give away some money and I'm going to get high. Now you think that's a joke. Listen to the rest of this article. If it's a meaningful donation, it can have significant impact. But if it's trivial, just grudging or whatever, probably not. This kind of meaningful giving or even contemplating such heartfelt generosity takes your focus off yourself and things that may weigh you down from day to day. Writing a check in hopes of lessening your stress without the thought as to where the money is going likely won't be as effective as giving from the heart. His words as giving from the heart. When you're able to give part of yourself in a selfless manner, the potential windfall can be significant and it all comes relatively easy. When giving selflessly, people say their friendships are deeper. They're sleeping better. They're able to handle life's obstacles better. Post says on a scale of one to 10, and 10 is a really powerful drug like insulin in the treatment of diabetes. So he's, he's comparing giving generously on a scale of one to 10 and 10 being insulin that keeps people alive. He says giving generously is around a seven or an eight. The amazing thing is you don't need to go to a drugstore for it. So everything that God is teaching us in the I like giving, everything, he's saying, you know what? It's, it's got to be part of your heart. And when it comes from the heart, when it has an impact on you, when it has, when it means something to you, God will reward you for it. And you don't have to wait till the church recognizes you. You don't have to wait until your wife even opens up the box with diamonds in it. You don't even have to wait. I might've got myself in trouble there. You might, you don't even have to wait until the Girl Scout figures out that you paid her twice as much for the cookies as what they're really worth, and we all know that. 